Welcome to the first episode of ESG in the Arctic, the fall 2021 edition of the Breaking the Ice podcast. My name is Lisa. And I'm Connor, and we are your co-hosts. Over the next few weeks, we'll be discussing the potential impacts that ESG investing may have on those living in the Arctic. We'll be speaking to people with a variety of backgrounds to investigate the question, what kind of role, if any, will ESG have in encouraging or discouraging the much-needed investment in the Arctic? Today, we'll explore the 2019 Arctic Corporate Shipping Pledge, created by Ocean Conservancy in collaboration with Nike. With the Arctic warming three times faster than the rest of the world, the melting ice in the Arctic is opening up new pathways for transshipment routes. According to Ocean Conservancy, this increase in shipping poses threats to the marine ecosystems and to the people who live in the Arctic communities. The pledge has been signed by several corporations, including H&M Group, Lee & Fung, Haypeg Lloyd, and the Mediterranean Shipping Company. Joining us today is Whit Shear, the Senior Director of Shipping Emissions at Ocean Conservancy, as well as the lead for Ocean Conservancy's International Arctic Program. Together, we will discuss the aims and origins of the pledge, Ocean Conservancy's collaboration with Nike, and the possible implications of the pledge, especially in relation to the impacts of the communities living in the Arctic. Now, let's get to the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm Jessica Shadian. I'm the president and CEO for Arctic 360. We're uh, Canada's uh, only Arctic-focused think tank. Um, and today we have a really great conversation ahead of us. Um, we have our two co-hosts here. We have uh, Lisa Toy and Connor Oak, two of our fellows at Arctic 360. And we have a new stream. So we have a podcast series called Breaking the Ice. Uh, over the summer, we did one on innovation in the Arctic and um, a second one on Greenland, uh, Canada, Northern relations. And so now we're kicking off, um, thank you, uh, Wid, we're kicking off a new one on ESG in the Arctic. And so today, um, our conversation, um, really fortunate to have Wit Sheard here from the Ocean Conservancy. Um, but you could tell us a little bit more about yourself um, as I pass, pass off the baton. Um, Lisa, I'll let you take it away and we'll go from there. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Jessica. Um, so thank you again, Whit, for uh, joining us today. So would you be able to tell us a little about yourself and how you got here? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. I, I grew up uh, on the Great Lakes when I was younger, so I spent a lot of time uh, both in relatively cold climates and uh, large bodies of water. After school, I moved out west and uh, ended up in uh, Palmer, Alaska, where I began working on conservation issues, um, largely related to the marine environment. Uh, th throughout the last 20 years, I've, I've had the good fortune to work on issues such as Arctic offshore drilling, uh, fisheries in, in the Arctic, and then work at the Arctic Council, where I began working on international shipping and Arctic shipping issues, uh, largely what I work on now. In sort of the similar vein, would you be able to tell us about the Ocean Conservancy's International Arctic Program? Sure. The Ocean Conservancy's International Arctic Plan, uh, Program is relatively young. Um, it's something we started because uh, I have a board membership with the Circumpolar Conservation Union, which is an accredited observer at the Arctic Council, where, as you know, uh, Arctic policy is uh, discussed and sometimes formulated. Um, and it's, uh, it's a really good opportunity um, for a conservation organization like myself to, uh, to observe the discussions. And I've always really appreciated the Arctic Council because the countries bring the indigenous communities of the North to the table uh, in the conversation. So it's a, it's a place where I've, I've been able to uh, listen and learn uh, quite a bit about economies of the North and, and the cultures of the North. So uh, I feel very fortunate in, in that uh, the work has been supported and we've been able to, uh, you know, collaborate on, on issues of importance uh, in Arctic communities. Thank you very much. Um, so the main goal of our podcast um, in the fall session is to look into ESG, environmental, social and governance um, goals, and how those can be used in business or finance or infrastructure building to improve life in the Arctic and how these goals impact the Arctic. Um, so you've gone forward on something called the Arctic Pledge. So we're hoping you could tell us a little bit about what the Arctic Pledge is, what are the origins of it, what are the aims of it? 
Sure, thanks, Connor. Uh, the origins of the Arctic Pledge uh, come from work done by the Arctic Council on the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment and work that was uh, being undertaken at the International Maritime Organization to reform the Polar Code, which applies to Antarctica and the Arctic Ocean. Uh, basically, the Arctic Council identified the largest threat to uh, the marine environment in the Arctic and communities that rely on it as a heavy fuel oil spill from a large cargo ship. Uh, similarly, at the International Maritime Organization, there was work being undertaken, uh, including all stakeholders and, and community groups from the Arctic to extend the ban on heavy fuel oil use, which uh, was banned in the Arctic or in the Antarctic into the Arctic Ocean as well. Uh, this was something that was really important uh, to a variety of stakeholders and, and something that was really driven home to many people back in uh, 2004 when the Selendang IU cargo ship broke up in the Aleutian Islands and dumped about 1.3 million liters of heavy fuel oil, which is sort of the dirtiest and most toxic and most persistent type of bunker fuel used. It's basically roofing tar. It's, it's the bottom of the barrel uh, and one of the cheapest things you can use, which is why it's always been used for cargo. But uh, it threatened the community's uh, livelihoods. It shut down local fishing and crabbing and almost shut down the uh, processing uh, in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, on Alaska, which is the uh, about half of the seafood in the United States is caught there. So there was a long process, a stakeholder process to discuss this and remediation issues, and it really helped spur the work at the Arctic Council and the International Maritime Organization to start address these issues uh, as related to uh, transshipment across um, in this case, the Pacific Ocean hitting the Southern Arctic, but it really spurred a conversation about the Arctic Ocean and, and the dialogue that some companies were having about how they could take a shortcut uh, across the Arctic Ocean. And although there you know, were some fuel savings that were positive, the studies that were happening and the dialogue that was happening really pointed to the fact that it's much riskier up there. There's no response efforts uh, that could be mounted, uh, even in Alaska and in the Alaskan Arctic, the nearest Coast Guard stations, you know, 1,000, 1,500 kilometers away. So the dialogue was around the level of risk that was occurring or would occur if we opened up a, a new route in the Arctic. And it seemed that uh, a large number of stakeholders felt that this was a premature item to do. Uh, paired with the global conversation about climate change and the decrease in sea ice and the fact that the Arctic is warming so much faster, uh, you know, we came to the conclusion shared by many that, that the risks were already too high and that as there were no localized benefits to transshipment across the ocean in these large ships, that this was something we could take a position on relatively comfortably um, to raise the level of dialogue around protection of the Arctic Ocean and this unacceptable level of risk to uh, communities in the north. Okay, so just to boil it down to a single point, or uh, organizations that sign on to this pledge are pledging not to use a transarctic shipment route, essentially. Yes, and it of course explicitly uh, makes clear that local and regional shipping, which is the livelihood of uh, many remote Arctic communities, is not included whatsoever, that this is just ships that would be passing by that have been identified as the largest risk to the marine environment up there. Right, okay. Um, so looking at the list of people who have signed on, one of the partners of the pledge is Nike. Um, so how did this collaboration come about? Yeah, as you know, uh, Nike has been pretty active on some social justice issues. I think like a lot of companies, of course, they have been criticized uh, uh, for, you know, woke capitalism, as some people call it, or making statements that might just pad their bottom line. Um, but this was something where our conversations uh, really, uh, to me at least, uh, indicated that they, they, they were being thoughtful about the Arctic Ocean. And this was at a time a couple of years ago when uh, French President Macron, for example, was talking about how the opening of the Arctic sea ice and potential transportation across the sea uh, was actually not a positive development. It was in fact a tragedy that was occurring, the loss of sea ice habitat so important to so many species. And it wasn't something to take advantage of, it was something to redouble our efforts and focus on. 
Um, I am under, you know, non-disclosure agreements about the specific conversation with these companies. So I do need to make it clear. I only speak about my thoughts and my experience, but I really felt like these companies were coming to the table uh, with a belief that they weren't quite sure what they could do for the Arctic and for the larger uh, issue of climate change besides some pledges they had made on, on greenhouse gas emissions. So we did try to work with them to develop something that you know, would spur the dialogue around protections for the Arctic, but you'll also see in the pledge, there's a couple points we make about recognizing that greenhouse gas emissions from all shipping is an issue that these companies need to address. And then we tried to make sure that it couldn't be interpreted as, well, we're not gonna ship across the Arctic anyway, so we can make this statement, um, this sort of virtue signaling you see today that, you know, would have no impact on the bottom lines. And we worked very hard as a, as a team to also recognize the larger issues related to global shipping and global movement of goods. And, and you can see that um, we have uh, included statements about precautionary management needed before any shipping does happen if we move down that route. And that these companies recognize that they're part of the larger problem that is driving warming in the Arctic. So uh, again, I really felt like the uh, participation was above board and that they were trying to help us to make a difference. Uh, the other important thing to note is uh, the, the companies that the cargo companies that signed up, you know, they represent up to a third of all uh, cargo shipping that goes across the ocean, the carriers themselves. So this was um, not just retail companies, in my opinion, virtue signaling. It was also members of the industry and a significant portion of the industry coming together and say, we, we agree and we need to have this larger dialogue and we need to make this statement because a shorter route across the Arctic comes with too many negatives and the real issues that need to be addressed are the smokestack emissions from shipping and the disproportionate risk to these communities of the North from a potential new route. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just curious, so in Ocean Conservancy's work as a whole, is it common to work with large uh, corporate corporate partners like Nike or is this sort of a unique case? Um, it's it's uh, situationally dependent. I mean, when we find good actors that want to collaborate, we will certainly move in that direction. Um, something that was just launched that we were a part of a couple weeks ago is the Cargo Owners for Zero Emission Vessels Initiative. Uh, that is a partnership with the Aspen Institute. And that is actually uh, some large companies similarly uh, getting together, uh, in this case, uh, Amazon, Patagonia and others and saying, we need to figure out a way to aggregate our demand and get zero emission vessels moving cargo across the planet sooner than later. So they committed to getting this done by 2030 and fully decarbonizing their transport and pushing for the uh, industry to um, to do the same. Sorry, they want to get the first boat on the water in 2030, fully decarbonize their transport by 2040, and then have the entire shipping industry, which is 3% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, decarbonized, fully decarbonized by 2050, which I think is a very appropriate goal and really was built on being in alignment with a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit that we're learning from the United Nations process. And all of the climate assessments are something we need to stay on to avoid catastrophic response. So it's it's potentially something that we'll be doing more of when we find partners that we consider uh, are not just making statements, but also taking actions uh, that can lead industry. And I think that's a really good example right there of, you know, we moved from the statement on Arctic shipping. We noted that greenhouse gas emissions across the board needed to be dealt with. And now we're seeing an initiative from com companies that are committed to action and taking the next steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from their industry, which I think is, is a positive. And if this keeps happening, I'm uh, more than happy to, to work with industries because we are more of a classic uh, conservation organization that has worked with governments and, uh, and uh, to a lesser extent communities, but to try to get initiatives that actually make a difference and that regulations result from. And so we are largely in the business of attempting to regulate industry. So, you know, as you noted, it's a, it's a, it's a movement in a, in a new direction a little bit, but one that I think um, we have thought carefully about and uh, we're trying to do in a, a manner that incorporates feedback and includes, you know, more partners than just companies and conservation groups. Interesting. Thank you so much. We talked about this a little beforehand, uh, but in terms of the process of the pledge itself, would you be able to tell us a bit more in detail about the specific sort of process that Ocean Conservancy followed to develop it? 
Sure, we had a lot of internal and external dialogue about the appropriate way um, for this to go forward. And, uh, you know, largely what we did was uh, we, we sat down and we listed out what would be our priorities and, and what would be acceptable to us as, you know, not coming across as greenwashing or just virtue signaling, but something that would really make a difference. Uh, then the companies we were working with, uh, we took a look at their corporate social responsibility initiatives. We talked to them um, about their supply chain. And really what we were looking for in many ways was companies that could ship goods across the Arctic, but chose not to specifically. So that it wouldn't just be a situation of someone foregoing something that they weren't gonna do anyway and trying to force their opinions on others. So, you know, th those were key elements, looking for companies that could take advantage of this route, but, but would be willing to make a statement that it wasn't appropriate at this time. And also companies generally that had a commitment to social responsibility that, you know, hopefully was uh, uh, more than just to the environment. Thank you. Um... In terms of the process for uh, consent in terms of the communities that live in these regions, what was the Ocean Conservancy's process for uh, free informed prior consent? Right. Um, as we were working on uh, just Arctic transshipments and large companies, we did not have a specific process for prior informed consent, something uh, we completely support as well as sovereignty for these communities in the north. Um, and in fact, this goes back to the work at the Arctic Council, where if you don't explicitly recognize these things, you're not in the room and able to participate in these conversations. So as opposed to a specific process, what we did was we built on the 10 years we had worked in the uh, shipping experts group at the Arctic Council, uh, where you have um, the Inuit, where you have uh, the Aleuts, where you have um, all members of uh, Northern communities and made sure that everything that we'd learned from those communities um, was included in this. And that's why we took the time in this process to make sure that local and regional shipping in the Arctic was noted as incredibly important to these communities and something that this was not in any way intended to uh, impact except for potentially positively um, in terms of you know, looking at precautionary management in the Arctic Ocean. But I think you can see it's it's just one page, the Arctic Pledge. I encourage everyone to read it. But right at the very top of that, it acknowledges the, the importance of local shipping to communities. And so this was about transshipment by large companies that had been identified through the Arctic Council process as posing the largest threat to the marine environment and to the subsistence way of life of these communities without providing any localized benefit. If in any way this was going to touch on uh, communities and livelihoods, it would have been a much longer process and would have included much larger dialogue. Um, something quite frankly that doesn't often happen uh, when companies are making uh, these statements. So we, we did our best to explic explicitly address this. I had lots of hallway conversations uh, with folks we work with in communities up north um, at the Arctic Council and otherwise to make sure that we were doing this in, in the best way possible. And while we're always welcome to continuing feedback um, on doing it better, I, I think we did a pretty good job of making sure that you know, the, the decade or more that we've worked on these issues with the communities of the North, the lessons learned were reflected right up front in the first paragraph of this pledge. Just to build on what you're saying here and speaking a little bit more generally, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can balance having infrastructure and economic potential for the people who live in the North with, as you've highlighted, the need to have a safe and clean environment. Um, how do those two factors get balanced? Yeah, it's it's a very difficult question, and although it's one I'm I'm happy to comment on from my perspective as someone from a conservation organization who's worked in, in the north but is not a member of a community for or from an indigenous community, you know, from my perspective, the Arctic Council is a very good uh, example of how to start getting it done. There's a sustainable development working group that specifically focuses on the issue of economic development and environmental protection. It is uh, largely agenda driven by the community organizations of the North where these things are discussed. So I think the first step is one, recognizing that uh, it's different in the North and these communities have been excluded from these conversations. Um, it's uh, 
I think climate change is the perfect example where communities of the north are bearing the brunt of the initial impacts as the Arctic warms three times as fast as the rest of the planet, but these communities are not the source of the carbon and pollution that is driving this change. And, you know, we've seen efforts to make sure that indigenous voices are included in the dialogue and Arctic indigenous voices are included in the dialogue. But my opinion is that they have not been robust enough efforts and that we need to restart these dialogues from an understanding of the history of these communities, uh, the um, you know often paradoxical contradictions that can occur in these communities, but really in understanding that these are sovereign communities that have a much longer history and tradition within the region and that the dialogue needs to start there. It doesn't need to start at uh, think tanks. It doesn't need to necessarily start at conservation organizations. It needs to start with and in the communities and they need to be empowered uh, to be able to take in form of thing, you know, take advantage of things like prior informed consent, which I do not believe has been, you know, implemented in uh, almost any of the Arctic countries, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm wondering, you know, there is this critical lack of infrastructure in the north. Um, there's a lot. There's a lack of marine infrastructure. There's a lack of pretty much everything. And financial institutions do have a very important role in building this critical infrastructure. Um, so one thing I am wondering is if we do prohibit shipping through the Arctic, does that, do you worry about that detracting from financial institutions making other kinds of investments in the Arctic that are needed? I do, and that's why we tried to make it very clear that this was relatively divorced from the economies of the local communities. I, I get uh, a very concerned when financial institutions make broad statements about not investing in the Arctic, uh, you know, investing in renewable energy, investing in communities, uh, investing in language preservation programs. These are all incredibly important things that need to happen in the North. Um, you know, these companies might be trying to make uh, statements, uh, you know, that we're not going to invest in heavily polluting industries and carbon intensive industries. But in my opinion, they need to make statements about the just transition to a newer, cleaner economy that includes northern communities and that includes understanding uh, what can be, um, you know, a pretty... Um, complex conversation with communities of the North that need to include commitments to uh, education, healthcare, things like broadband infrastructure, and that aren't just necessarily the traditional economic dialogue of do we want a factory or not, but really that, that wrap into these other larger issues around maintaining the subsistence way of life, recognizing sovereignty and being sure that you know, these decisions made on the global stage are informed by communities and are in fact in, you know, many ways um, in service to the uh, needs and stated wishes of these community members. You know, going back to the sort of emissions of global maritime shipping, you've already touched on this a little bit, but we know that approximately 3% of global emissions come from uh, the global maritime shipping. So that would include, for example, the Suez and Panama canals. Um, and so given this, uh, why has the Ocean Conservancy chosen to focus on the Arctic shipping routes, um, which have very little transshipment taking place? Um, was this focus more so on the possibility of oil spills? Yes, absolutely. At the time we were working um, both on finalizing the regulations under the Polar Code at the International Maritime Organization to um, phase out the use of the dirtiest fuel, heavy fuel oil uh, in the north. Uh, and we were working with several community members um, that this was very important to. So we were building this work both from our international Arctic program and from the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment from the Arctic Council, which highlighted this as most important. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think you hit the nail on the head. And as a, a, you know, the second paragraph of the pledge says, it's really global greenhouse gas emissions that are the existing problem. And these companies that sign this are part of that problem and they recognize it and want to turn the corner. So, you know, in my mind, it was a, a moment in time a couple of years ago when this was something that people wanted to talk about. And we were engaged in working on regulations for the Arctic. Uh, based on the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment and the input of the Arctic communities. And I think what we've tried to do with that second paragraph and our work since then is build a 
movement around decarbonizing the shipping industry. And so, uh, again, we just launched uh, with the Aspen Institute that, that cargo owners for zero emission vessels process. And just from an internal working perspective, Ocean Conservancy spends far more time working on um, global greenhouse gas emission reduction from shipping than we do specifically on Arctic management measures, because this is a very real existing problem. And it's been fantastic because uh, we've been working with some of the small island developing states, for example, in the in the Pacific places like um, you know, Tuvalu, Trinidad and Tobago, um, the Royal Marshall Islands. And uh, even only after a year of this work, you know, they've they've made clear several things to us. One is that they are sovereign indigenous states and they are very proud of that. The second is because they face this similar existential crisis to uh, their islands disappearing and their culture in many ways being wiped out by the impacts of climate change, something similar to what we hear in the north from communities that need to be relocated or are losing subsistence resources you know they've reached out and asked uh, can they form partnerships with communities in the arctic to really drive home what the impacts of the existing greenhouse gas emissions are from shipping and the urgency of the issue and in my mind this is something that we as conservation groups and as these companies can do is uh, empower that dialogue and let these communities and um, states uh, take the lead and in many ways direct us to where we need to move. And uh, I hope that's reflected in the Arctic Shipping Pledge, for example, which was, again, you know, cognizant of the importance of local shipping in specific that, that this needed to continue. And then also, you know, fed into the dialogue about really the issue is your existing shipping companies. Are you willing to recognize that and are you willing to start working on it? So I, I hope that we've made that pivot and we're investing the proper amount of time on global greenhouse gas emissions without uh, losing the commitment to uh, ensuring that uh, if if asked, we are able to um, continue to be allies with communities of the north on these issues that that can really impact subsistence resources, especially. So building on something you said earlier in the interview as well, um, you mentioned earlier on that by 2030, there will be actually a lot of 0% emissions uh, in shipping happening. And uh, one company that's done this is Maersk. Um, so do you think that if we have 0% emission shipping by 2030, around the time when we might start seeing large scale shipping through the Arctic, does it take away from the, the pledge that um, we might not be seeing many shipments of the Arctic regardless before we hit 0% emissions? Uh, right. Uh, it would be great if it could take away from the pledge because that would mean there is reduced risk in the marine environment. Um, I think uh, it, it's important. It would be important to talk to communities specifically about that because there are still going to be impacts from ships. Uh, noise from ships, for example, is, is enormous. And in the Arctic, uh, it's you know, larger than in other places because of the ice and it impacts subsistence resources, which, you know, if driven even a kilometer or two off of their traditional routes can cause uh, quite a disruption to the subsistence way of life in these communities. So I think it would be a very positive development. I do not think it would uh, solve all of the problems um, that we're looking at in the Arctic, but of course, removing that major risk from heavy fuel oil and oil spills is a great first step. And I would, of course, defer to the communities on whether or not the level of risk that remains uh, is worth it, considering we haven't really identified any local benefits from, um, you know, basically flyover boats that are just passing by and, you know, not stopping, not part of the economies of uh, the communities whatsoever. So I think some risk would remain, but of course, it would be fantastic to eliminate that that first identified risk from the Arctic Council's uh, Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment. Shifting the focus onto ESG, uh, do you think it has the potential to play an important role in safeguarding the Arctic? I, I do. I'm, I'm highly skeptical. I, I've always been highly skeptical because I worry about sort of flavor of the month campaigns and, you know, virtue signaling, greenwashing, the idea of, you know, false woke capitalism and things like that. But it's something we have to address and it's something that uh, we can do better. Um, you can see 
uh, companies like Patagonia and others who are trying to move to zero waste and zero emissions as fast as possible. Uh, I personally would like to see more companies spending more time in dialogue with communities of the North and not just reaching out and asking these communities to give them advice, but actually resourcing these communities and some of the nonprofit organizations in these communities to ensure that uh, they can be at the table and that it's not just uh, causing more stress on the limited time that communities have to work on these issues. So I think the history of ESG is, um, you know, been positive and negative in many ways. So I'm hopeful that the positive can be accentuated and that these real commitments, not just statements of ambition, but actually timelines, pathways to action, interim steps, and resourcing under-resourced partners uh, like some of the communities of the North to be at the table and to be better able to participate in what hopefully can be a more green economy. You know, this is what I referenced earlier about the conversation around a just transition. I don't think companies can just say, we'll reduce our emissions and we've done the right thing. I think there is a social aspect to it um, in resourcing uh, communities that have been left out of the conversation sometimes um, and who have, you know, had major decisions made on their behalf without prior informed consent or even legitimate input in so many ways. So I think there's a long way to go for ESG, but, um, it, it, it's something that needs to happen. And in many ways, it's why I was willing to uh, take this leap into working on the pledge and then working on the cargo owners for zero emission vessels as well. I think we have an opportunity uh, to make it better. Uh, and I think we have an opportunity not to speak for these communities that have been cut out of the equation, but to constantly say, if you're not talking with these communities, if your decisions are not informed with these communities, we can't partner with you anymore. We can't be the only ones you bring to the table because you know we're largely uh, conservation organizations funded, um, you know, by uh, charitable trusts uh, in the United States at least, and um, you know that doesn't represent uh, the shared history of these communities in, in so many ways. Great, thank you so much. I think you bring up such a great point about sort of risk of virtue signaling, um, which is definitely an issue uh, that is that is possible for ESG. Um, and we hope that that will kind of be um, uh, the positives will outweigh the negatives in, in that respect. Um, and so in that kind of similar uh, vein, do you think that the Ocean Conservancy then has an important role uh, to play in ESG? I hope so. I, I hope we can. Obviously our goals, are largely based around conservation, but in the dialogue around a just transition and addressing the climate crisis, uh, we've tried to spend a lot of time understanding how we can be uh, an ally or even an accomplice across uh, other social justice movements and how we can help uh, impact uh, the, the, the larger social movements that arguably need to happen to get us to a sustainable economy. Uh, and dialogue with uh, large corporations who have so much sway over where we're going in the future. We hope that um, you know, we can be a positive part of that and that it doesn't come at the expense of either us being able to work towards conservation or from these companies reaching out uh, to the communities who they really need to invest uh, much more time and resources into, in my opinion. Um, I think I might jump in to ask a, a question, but it's, I also wanted to pick up on a few things that you had mentioned. You, you brought up a lot of important points from things such as you know, the just, just transition, um, uh, potential with noise, um, and also, well, so I wanna come back for a minute. It's one thing that you had mentioned that I think it was uh, at the time kind of when you were discussing with Nike about the pledge. I do remember the pledge came out around a time where there was also um, other pledges, uh, strategic kind of uh, declarations that came out that seem to all be focused on on the Arctic. So uh, this time, I would say the ESG conversation was really uh, about the E and less about the S and the G. And so we have financial institutions, you know, making pledges, but the pledges were more about, you know, they're not going to do any financial investments uh, in hydrocarbons in the Arctic. That doesn't say anything about the investments they have ongoing or will do in the future anywhere else. Um, 
And so speaking a little bit to, to the virtual signaling and also the point you brought up, the importance of uh, free informed prior consent. And so a lot of those um, pledges also demand that for future investments, but it's hard to just know what that conversation was amongst themselves internally with the indigenous communities, for instance. Um, and so these pledges and these kind of, they came out, you know, in, in around this, you know, era in the, you know, over like, let's say the course of like a year or two, um, all focused on climate change, environment. Um, and I'm just wondering if it also created, it, it created uh, the sense that fed into a lot of perceptions that we should keep the Arctic, you know, like locked up in a snow globe. Um, and, and the best way to protect the people there is to do nothing, right? Never, you know, we don't have any kind of things happening there, but we do know people live there. And we do know that people uh, um, really need critical infrastructure. I mean, everything, like you said about broadband, but then also running water. Um, and some of this critical infrastructure actually supports safe shipping. So there's a, it's kind of a twofold question. I'm wondering first, so COVID created a uh, kind of a turning stage, I would say, like a turning point with the whole ESG conversation. And we started to highlight, you know, the people part of the ESG and the social issues. And I'm just wondering what you think. And if, you know, maybe there's a possibility for, I don't know, like a, a part two or, you know, with these kind of pledges that also can have just as much focus on the people um, as the environment, because, you know, this uh, sustainable development goes hand in hand. And um, so maybe if you could just comment a little bit, maybe on the social part, you see, you see like in role the Ocean Conservancy might play in, 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 in the S for ESG. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great question. And again, I, I was also very concerned. It was a flavor of the month sort of thing that was happening at the time. And this um, perception of, of locking up the Arctic in a snow globe is, is one that concerns me, you know, very greatly. Obviously, there's cultures that exist in the Arctic and have existed since time immemorial that are completely ignored and, and done a disservice by some of these statements. And, and again, I'll say that's why the you know, very first paragraph of this attempted to recognize uh, that there are social components of it that weren't being addressed. For Ocean Conservancy as a conservation organization, um, I think like a lot of conservation organizations in the past, people wanted to focus only on environmental issues, uh, stay in our lane, you know, that's what we do. Uh, and then, you know, the realization comes that these things don't exist in a vacuum. There's an E and an S, you know, in, in ESG, for example. I think that's a longer dialogue within the conservation community but that hopefully the role we can play is as an ally or as i said before as an accomplice as as the case may be um and that really gets back to um uh, investing in and empowering communities um you know in many ways uh this we are not going to invest in the arctic is a slap in the face to uh these um uh, ancient in many ways, but also very modern communities that exist in the North and um, is a big concern. Uh, I think what we're trying to do is, is not necessarily uh, work through the um, governance route on that, except to, as we have a small ESG component of our work, make sure that we're saying over and over again to these partners, these companies, that if they're not partnering and listening to and investing in communities of the North, this can't go any further. Um, they're impacted, and um, these statements can be read by others uh, inappropriately, in, in my opinion, to, you know, suggest we shouldn't be focused on working with these communities or allowing um, both prior informed consent and sovereignty as to the economic decisions uh, being made in the north. So, it's a difficult role for conservation organizations. Um, it's one that we do not take lightly. But it's one that I certainly don't think that we can sit down with companies and figure out um, if there was uh, appropriate partners at the table, we'd be happy to engage in that dialogue. I think we're more at a moment in time with some of these companies uh, just explaining uh, that they have an obligation and a responsibility, both not to cause unintended consequences to these economies that have faced uh, challenges based on uh, remoteness based on um, just uh, the fact that uh, the larger community often um, discriminates against them in so many ways, whether it's education funding or health care. 
um, that these companies have an obligation and a role to play in this. And it's not our, um, it's not within our role to tell them exactly what it is, but it is 100% within our role to make sure that they know these partnerships are not going to go forward if that dialogue isn't inclusive. Uh, and in fact, that um, they and we in the past have failed on this and it needs to be a top line item that is addressed in any of these conversations. Um, maybe I just have a follow-up. You know, I guess another way of putting it is, do you think there could be like an ironic, in a way, benefit if there was to be increased shipping? First of all, I want to say with a caveat, the caveat, like let's, you know, we are moving towards zero emission shipping. So we're going that direction. And so um, I know you were saying that Nike, you know, was looking at, you know, the possibility. So it wasn't just people who are never going to ship through the Arctic. But in reality, if they were going to start shipping through the Arctic, changing your whole logistic supply chain is not something that happens overnight. So it would have been more of a, you know, medium term shift in and of itself. And so let, so we are going towards more zero emissions. Um, I know that, you know, Alaska um, has done some really fantastic work on uh, safe passages and creating safe passage lanes uh, like around the Great Circle Route and this type of thing. Uh, I know in Canada that there's a whole uh, project as well that's been ongoing uh, through the federal government to create also safe passageways through there. Um, one of the things, if you talk to many communities in the North, they will say outright is that, you know, it's, they want more, uh, you know, maritime uh, infrastructure. So, you know, um, ports, and, 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 you know, obviously ports have then provide greater possibility to, um, to, to, you know, emergency preparedness and response, but also to help with interregional shipping. But if, so let's say then you, you know, if then there's an increase of just transshipments, I would, one would, one could say that would galvanize possibly the potential for more um, resources towards emergency preparedness and response infrastructure so you know ports and, and and greater coast guard and so you know ships that can respond to an emergency and so i'm i'm wondering if, if you know what you feel then about safe passages and if that is you know something that you see potential to actually really work and at some point could there be you know where's the the between the risks the payoff and the benefits and the negative consequences in terms of if it could galvanize and help build some of the needed infrastructure on the maritime space. Yeah, I, I actually don't see a causal effect there with transshipment. And, and we've we've looked at these things. Um, you know, I there needs to be more investment in emergency response and preparedness and in local ports, regardless of um, large ships passing by. Um, I, I think uh, the dialogue could it could be possibly increased and point to the need for these things, but they already exist without increased traffic. So, uh, it, you know, in many ways, uh, planes that are flying from New York to San Francisco are not providing any benefit in Iowa and building up the New York and San Francisco airports is probably not going to spur any investment in the airports in Iowa, unfortunately. So I, I, I think the conversation needs to be decoupled a little bit. All of these are incredible needs for the region regardless. And really we recognize even in the pledge that it might, you know, transshipping might come to the Arctic. And that's why we talk about the need for precautionary management. Um, the interesting, the examples you brought up are good ones because the routing measures in Alaska came largely uh, from the Selendang IU disaster, that 1.3 million liters of heavy fuel oil that was dumped into fishing um, uh, and local fishing grounds uh, and fish processing grounds. Whereas uh, my understanding of the work in Canada on protected areas uh, in Iqaluit, especially and others, is that there have been some uh, incredibly work, incredibly good work done on indigenous-led conservation areas. And that it's not necessarily a new paradigm, but I, I would say it's very different than what we saw in Alaska. And it's what I consider a very positive development in starting that dialogue uh, with indigenous led um, conversations and with everybody at the table together, you know, working these things out. So I can see if there's going to be an increase in, in transshipment, if we can incorporate that sort of new paradigm of making sure, unfortunately new, of making sure that it's indigenous led and that the conversation comes from the communities and with the communities, 
Um, you know, I don't think there is right now any trickle down benefits to transshipment. It's still noted as the largest potential threat to the marine ecosystem of the Arctic and subsistence resources. So I really want to underscore that point. That has not changed. Um, but anyway, to get this dialogue increased and to focus more attention on the need for uh, prevention and you know, port improvements and reception facilities, I think is incredibly useful. I worry that there are some disingenuous actors um, you know, from industries and government members, for example, uh, pushing the Northern Sea route in Russia that want to use that dialogue to open up Arctic transshipment without uh, adequate precautions and safeguards, again, leaving all the identified risk on communities, but sort of using the, the communities as a um, straw man argument. Oh, there'll be trickle down benefits to these boats that pass by only causing risk to these communities. We have seen no evidence of that whatsoever. And, you know, the moment there is true evidence of that, I, I would be happy to incorporate that into the dialogue and the conversation. But really, I think those are two very separate conversations. All those needs exist right now. Um, and transshipment is just a large risk with no local economic benefits at the moment. I'll ask one final question and I'll open it up to all of you to add any um, more pieces or questions or thoughts you might have. Um, you know, there has been a lot of discussion. I So I see what you're saying precisely. And my question originally was gonna be on, do you see like an opportunity for the US and, um, and Canada to, you know, to collaborate or cooperate on in this whole region on safe shipping? There has been a concerted effort and discussion about trying to turn this whole region into some sort of regulate, you know, regulated seaway, something akin a bit to the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway idea. And so then there would be a way to, um, which is what Russia actually does though, um, is to tax people. So you basically charge people who want to do transshipments. And so um, like there could be a, you know, a tax if you wanted to fly over Arctic. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's creating a fee and, you know, the fee for going through and that fee could then help support, you know, just doing a lot of the, the uh, you know, helping to build a lot of the, the maritime infrastructure that we all know is needed and is wanted and is already a discussion, but no one seems to be willing to or has the, you know, resources to put the, all that money into it. So, um, and I know Lisa Murkowski has also put, I think, a bill um, on the table that kind of speaks to the beginning of those type of conversations um, about trying to charge a fee and set something up that's a little bit more regulatory. I would just, I'm curious at your thoughts on, on you know, this and if this could, you know, if there's anything here that might be of a benefit. Yeah, I think, I think that could be one component of a multitude of things that would have to happen. Um, unfortunately, without adequate response, without adequate port reception facilities, you know, um, what you're doing is being reactionary and saying boats are going through, let's tax them and build these things up. That really doesn't mitigate this risk to the Arctic marine environment or these communities. But I think it's an important component of the dialogue, which again, I think should be community led. Um, and that, you know, routing measures, different technologies for engines, a carbon tax potentially, all of these things are important components, but I think they need to be in place before the, the ship, they need to be in place to mitigate the risk appropriately before shipping. Uh, and that's just, you know, my personal opinion, but I think those investments need to be made before, um, you know, this identified number one risk to the environment is, is increased in, in place. And, um, you know, that's my view from my, my conservation seat. And I, I'm sure there's more nuanced and complicated uh, views in some of these communities that are, that are struggling with, um, you know, what we talked about in the very beginning, balancing uh, environmental protection with sustainable development, especially in, in smaller remote economies. Do you have anything else that you want to add or does anyone have a follow-up question before we wrap ourselves up? Is there anything that you feel you that you want to add to the conversation that we haven't been able to bring up so far? Uh, I just think, uh, you know, I, I hope that you get the time to talk to uh, various uh, community members from Alaska or, you know, um, from Canada to discuss the issue. Um, it, it's obviously very complicated up there. Um, you even have issues, you know, the oil and gas industry and development in the U.S. Arctic, the, the taxation from that. Um, has been used for, um, you know, one of the strongest indigenous-led uh, language preservation and dance preservation programs and keeping components of Inuit culture alive 
Um, others in the community feel that it's the existential threat to their livelihood that climate change will, you know, render the traditional ways um, obsolete or subsistence resources unavailable. And you have this sort of uh, very paradoxical and complicated situation where uh, economic development can, of course, feed uh, cultural um, stability and keep these communities' um, livelihoods and traditions alive, but also uh, be part of what's you know threatening the availability of resources. So sometimes it seems easy to just talk about the conservation components of things because we're talking about protecting the marine environment and this can help protect subsistence resources, but these are much more complicated issues. And when you get into the communities um, and start to talk to folks, you realize, and I hope these companies realize it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and it really needs to get out of our traditional mode of, um, you know, regulating from above and from economic decisions by large actors being what determines um, what goes on day to day in these places. So, um, you know, in many ways, we have a myopic view uh, uh, in conservation and we did our best to incorporate what we've learned from our, our community partners and from our work at the Arctic Council. But, you know, to me, it's just the tip of the rapidly melting iceberg at the moment. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. We've got, um, and, and thank you. And I, I think that's great. And actually maybe I will send you a copy. We've for two years with, with the Coast Guard, um, Arctic 360 has held a small shipping workshop um, with Northern communities just to talk about safe, reliable shipping, what we need to do to get there. Um, it hasn't been about transshipment, um, but there's, you know, the overwhelming, um, agreement among all and you can see from a lot of the indigenous reports that have come out is they all just want more infrastructure in the north writ large critical infrastructure but also maritime infrastructure to support shipping uh sorry short support fishing um among you know and also increase supply uh, uh you know barges that can come through and these type of things so how we get there is another question so. Yeah, the critical infrastructure investments, uh, you know, need to come from everybody, including these companies and, um, you know, this movement, hopefully towards indigenous led conservation um, and a little more um, uh, thoughtful outreach by governments and conservation groups and others that are pushing for conservation. Um, I think these are movements in the right direction and, and hopefully we'll see that in, um, you know, ESG as well. But uh, uh, there's a lot of work for all of us to do and we need to make clear in every conversation and every dialogue that there are people being sometimes excluded from these conversations and, and need to be at the table, if not leading the dialogue in many ways. So I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it'd be great to take a look. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a really um, great conversation. I think that um, it's, it's had a lot of nuance and a lot of information that people probably don't know um, on a regular basis. So hopefully um, people will learn a lot when they listen or watch. So. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.